Hey guys, your host, Avery Carl with The Short-Term Shop here. Welcome to our 10 episode deep dive on the Sarasota and Bradenton area, which includes all those fun barrier islands like Anna Maria Island, Siesta Key, really the West Coast of Florida. And if you guys are ready to start buying in this market, email us at agents at theshorttermshop.com and we will connect you with our expert agents in this market. I also wanted to let you know that we have some supplemental materials for you guys available on our website. It's theshorttermshop.com where you can go and you can set up a search and look at properties, see what the purchase prices are in this market currently. And you can save your search so that when a property that hits the market in your price range comes out, we can email you and then you'll know right away. We've also got the AirDNA data, thanks to our friends over at AirDNA, for this market for the past few years to help you gauge what a property should be able to do. We've got a pretty cool calculator on the website also to help you tie everything together. So lots of stuff to help you along your way while you're listening to this podcast or and or if you just want to hang out with us more that's pretty cool because we want to hang out with you too and there's one good place you can do that it is our facebook group same title as my book it's called short-term rental long-term wealth it's just us and 60,000 of our closest friends hanging out talking about short-term rentals sharing best practices and all that stuff so you can join that or if you guys really just want to talk to us directly if you have questions about short-term rentals we have an open office hours call every Thursday, and you can sign up for that at strquestions.com. Now let's get to the episode. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode on the Short-Term Show special episode series on the Sarasota, Bradenton, uh, Siesta Key, Amelia, uh, sorry, Anna Maria Island area. We have not really come up with anything to call this area other than the West Coast of Florida. So lots and lots of cool little areas in there, as you know from previous episodes. But today, we're going to be talking about financing in this market. So I've got John and Christina, as usual, but we also have Johnny from The Mortgage Shop. Johnny, you want to introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I'm Johnny with The uh, Mortgage Shop. I'm the executive vice president over here, um, here to help with any financing questions and uh, like been in... Uh, the industry for in the financing industry for about 20 years and uh real estate industry for 10 plus years so um here to help with any questions from a, a loan loan officer perspective awesome so let's start i thought we would go in order of easiest types of loans mm -hmm. to get in terms of not necessarily to qualify for but in terms of just finding them to most difficult or i don't want to use the word difficult but you know what i mean so first Let's talk about conventional financing. So conventional financing is the easiest type of financing to find. You can find it at any mortgage broker, bank, lender, any of the above. Um, Johnny, do you want to talk about what a conventional loan is? Yeah, a conventional loan is a loan that is uh, backed by or bought by uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Uh, they're a specific set of standards that they have around those things. And uh, typically with conventional, you'll run across, you know, your 10% down second home and 15% down investment properties um, with specific DTI qualifications and, and so on. All right. So with conventional financing, that is Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac backed. So um, what that means is we have to follow their rules and guidelines on our um, DTI, which is your debt to income ratio. So you're qualified on these based on your personal income and the debt that you have. So your car payments, your current mortgage payments, things like that. 
you also cannot get these types of loans in an LLC, right? You have to get them in your personal name. That's correct. Yeah. You'll have to get them into your, your personal name. There's a possibility of changing it afterwards. Uh, I would recommend that you call the servicing department when you're going to do something like that. Um, but there is that possibility. There might be some costs associated with it. But um, uh, if you're going to do anything from an LLC perspective, it'll have to be after the fact. So when you say there might be some costs associated with it. And maybe John and Christina can chime in here. I know in the state of Florida, if you have any sort of a transfer, then you might have to pay some taxes on that, on the the value of the property. I don't know exactly. Uh, maybe you guys know a little more than I do about it. But I know if you own something in your personal name and you go to transfer into your LLC, you might have to pay some pretty significant taxes on that. Do you guys have any experience with it, John? Um, I would start off by saying I am not a tax advisor, so consult your local accountant. But uh, from what, the way I understand it, there will be some transfer taxes, transferring it from your personal name to an LLC, but it's not considered a taxable event. If you were to transfer from your LLC to your personal name, that's what would be considered a taxable event. But again, I would recommend consulting your tax professional for advice. Yes, absolutely. So just keep that in mind. It's not just all, It's not always just a, hey, I'm going to change this from this to that. You might have have some transfer taxes to pay or you might not. But of course, ask your, your CPA. So, Johnny, what is the minimum amount down you can put on a conventional investment loan? Yeah, so conventional investment would be 15% up to uh, the, the limit of uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, um, the conforming limit, which is uh, at, at the current moment is uh, $726,000. And two hundred dollars. And so, anytime you go over that, you're going to have to put twenty uh, percent or more. Anytime you're under that, you can go up to about fifteen percent on the investment loans. I think that's really important to remember because so many people think it's twenty percent, and it, I, I mean, I've thought that until just a few years ago. But it's actually fifteen percent on a single family. If it's a multifamily, that's different. But single family, and I think that. Uh, it's a nice segue into the next type of loan that I'm going to talk about, which is also conventional, uh, is the second home loan. So, Johnny, before we get into comparing and contrasting that, can you tell us what a second home loan is? Yeah, a second home loan is a vacation loan. Uh, usually, uh, people put about 10% down, uh, depending on you know their comfortability. Uh, but from a financing perspective, uh, you are able to do that. You have to use the property, right, as your second home. Uh, here at the mortgage shop, we require that you use it at least 14 to 15 days out of the year just for tax purposes to recognize it as an uh, owner-occupied property. However, you know, different lenders are going to require different things. And uh, some lenders, if you're using it as a second home or a vac vacation home, they're not going to allow you to rent it out at all. So um, that's something that you have to consider when you're buying a uh uh, a vacation home. So wh what are the, the regulations or loose guidelines about where vacation homes can be in relation to where you live? Yeah. So the, the there's different standards for every lender, of course. Uh, we typically recommend about, you know, 50 uh, miles uh, away from your current home. So it has to be in a different market, typically. Um, if it's going to be within that radius, that 50% or 50 mile radius, then the likelihood is that we're going to consider that an investment property because it's too close to your current home to consider it a second home. Unless you're just in a totally different market, say, for example, uh, beach versus downtown, right? Gotcha. 
So I think the important thing to remember here is if you are going to use a vacation home loan, yes, that 10% down is very enticing because it's, you know, 10% versus 15 versus maybe 20. And you really want to make sure that you're coloring inside the lines when it comes to this, because I've seen a lot of investors try to get really cute with doing a bunch of partnerships and buying you know, 10, 20 properties in the same market, all with different vacation loans, but having partnerships set up to where it's really not someone's vacation home, period. They're all investments. And I think those are the kinds of things that if Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac or whatever powers that be decide to start cracking down on that. Those are going to be the ones that are like in the crosshairs. So my advice is if you are running spreadsheets on a property, you should probably go ahead and put that extra 5% down and make it an investment property. Um, that being said, this is a market where I think there's a lot of lifestyle investing going on, in which case I think if you guys don't know what a lifestyle investment is, listeners, you probably do, but I'm going to give a definition anyway. Lifestyle investment is when you're not necessarily looking at it as an investment property. It's like, you know what? I really, really want to own a house or a condo in Anna Maria Island. I've always wanted to have something there. I'm going to buy this thing and it's going to be mine to to use personally, but I am going to rent it out when I'm not there just to kind of put a dent in its own expenses. Uh, I think that second home loans do lend themselves really well to that type of scenario where you really are going to use it yourself and just rent it when you're not there. But really, really make sure that you're you're coloring inside the lines when it comes to these types of loans, because I've never heard of anyone getting in trouble or getting busted for mortgage fraud on that. But it is a fine line. And I don't want any of you guys who are our listeners to be the ones that that go down for that. So just make sure you're doing talk to your loan officer make sure you're doing everything right and don't don't try to cut corners don't don't try to get in gray areas cuz they eventually become red areas so that's enough enough scolding or or warning for now on that um all right johnny what's a jumbo loan because i think people get a little confused there with is it conventional is it not conventional and what is that how does that look yeah so usually jumbo loans for sure they're not conventional loans right uh, there's uh, typically some kind of portfolio product however uh, there are times where fannie mae and uh, freddie mac will purchase them um but they are loans that are above uh the 726,200 loan limit which lenders will lend out, uh, usually utilizing guidelines from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, right? Uh, there might be a, a few different nuances just because they'll put their overlays on top of it. And uh, that allows you to go above the conventional conforming loan limits. Gotcha. So conforming loan limits are what, about 800-ish purchase price? Yeah, yeah. You'll okay. see, typically it's it's purchase price is a little bit over 800 I think it's like 805 or something like that, starting with second homes. And then uh, you can go a little bit higher with investments because they require the 15% down. So as long as that loan amount doesn't exceed that uh, 726, 200, you're, you're going to be in the conforming. Once it exceeds that, even by you know one penny, right? If it exceeds that, it's going to go into the jumbo. Um, and jumbo's got a little bit more like a, of a restriction. For example, some of our jumbos they require a DTI forty five percent versus a fifty percent DTI, right? Gotcha. So you got to have a little less debt to qualify for jumbos in some cases. Yep. No. All right. So let's move on to the next type of, I think, second most popular type of loan when it comes to buying short-term rentals, and that's a DSCR loan. So these are little 
you can't just walk into any lender in the country and get one of these for short-term rentals like you can with conventional. There's a handful of lenders out there that are pretty easy to find when it comes to mortgage shop being one of them, when it comes to getting a DSCR loan for short-term rentals. But Johnny, what is a DSCR loan? Yeah, a DSCR loan is a loan that we um, utilize the income from the property to offset the expenses, right? So uh, DSCR stands for debt service coverage ratio, which means that as long as the income from the property produces of a certain amount over the monthly expenses, then you're going to be able to qualify as long as you have the down payment and the right FICO scores. So it's not using your personal income. Okay. So the bank is giving you the loan based on what the property will make. So instead of them looking at what you make and what debt you have, they're looking at what the property will make. And some cool things about this is you can have unlimited financed properties. So back to conventional, you can only have 10 and then they'll stop giving you those loans. But with DSCR, you can have unlimited. You can buy them right in your LLC. You don't have to get it in your personal name. Um, and then what is it? What's the debt service coverage ratio? What's the definition of DSCR? Well, I just said that, but what? <laughs> sorry, what does the ratio have to be is what I meant. Yeah, so the, the ratio has to be at least a one-to-one, -one, right? There are some programs that allow you to go lower than one-to-one, -one, but typically you're going to have a more significant of a down payment required. Uh, for the most case, most cases, it's going to be one-to-one to, -one to uh, 1.25 of the, um, the debt, right? So that income has to exceed the debt by either the same amount or a little bit more. Gotcha. Now, here is the catch on these. And it's not a catch, really, but a lot of people are like, oh, man, I'm going to get a billion DSCR loans because I don't have to worry about qualifying with my income. But because it's riskier for the bank to just give you a loan based on your ability to make sure the property makes what it needs to make, the interest rates are typically higher. Um, what's the difference in interest rates that we're seeing uh, in DSCR versus conventional right now? We're seeing, I mean, uh, it, it's going to depend on your specific uh, scenario, but on average, we're seeing somewhere around uh, eight and a half to nine and a half is where we're seeing the interest rates. In addition to that, you're going to be paying more points typically. So you got to consider the points. And then in addition to that, there's typically a prepaying penalty of some type, right? So uh, there's a few different uh, nuances to them, which means you can't just refinance them, you know, in a year or two without having to pay a penalty, right? So you got to prepare for those kind of things. Okay. So with a DSCR loan, you really need to be planning to hold the property decently long-term to avoid those uh, prepayment penalties. So you said the word point. What's a what's a point? So point is one percent of the loan amount. Uh, so one point is one percent of the loan amount. Typically on a DSCR, you're going to see somewhere between two to three points, right? Um, and that those are fees that are paid specifically for the rate for the for the type of loan, um, and they're part of your closing costs. Gotcha. So a little bit higher closing costs on DSCR loans. But the cool thing is you don't have to use your debt to income to qualify. So this is really good for people who maybe have the down payment, but they don't have the DTI to qualify. You know, maybe you've gotten an, inherit an inheritance or 
uh, have some kind of a windfall that your W-2 doesn't necessarily support, but you can buy, but you have the buying power in terms of your down payment. Maybe it's for people who recently switched from W-2 to 1099 work and they don't have two years of income to show to be able to qualify for conventional. So uh, a number of reasons you would use these, but they're typically going to cost more in both points and interest rate to do. All right. So let's talk about true commercial. Well, actually, sorry, let me back up. So DSCR loans are a portfolio product, right? So let's talk about what right. a portfolio product is. What's that? So a portfolio product is a product that uh, the bank or the lending institution has, you know, their own funding uh, and they're able to make decisions based on uh, their own sets of guidelines. It's not guidelines around, you know, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. It's their own set of guidelines with their investors and and such that they um, can use the funds and make decisions however it is that they like to uh, based on their own sets of rules for their, those lending institutions. Okay. So it's something, I, and maybe I'm characterizing this wrong, it's something in between a conventional and a true commercial loan. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. All right. So let's move on to commercial. So a true commercial loan is something you're usually going to have to get from a local bank, either local to you or local to the property. You're probably not going to be able to go to any of the big national banks and be given a commercial loan. Typically, commercial lenders are going to want a relationship out of you. So if you come to them and say, I'm planning to buy this one house in Bradenton and that's it, they're probably not going to consider you. Uh, again, this a commercial loan is not dependent on your personal debt to income ratio. They don't qualify you like that. It's based off of what the property will make. But they do want to see your entire financial picture and what's typically called a PFS or a personal financial statement. So they want to see how many properties you own, what your equity is on those, how much those are making, your W-2, all of that, because they use the whole picture to decide whether or not they're going to give you the loan. So they typically do what's called uh, taking it to committee, where they will take your personal financial statement, your business plan, everything they know about you in a room of people, and they will, it's like a movie, they will sit around the table and discuss whether or not they want to give a loan to you. Typically, they're going to want to see that a, a good business plan, a history of being successful at it. So maybe if you're coming into the Bradenton, Sarasota market, but you've got a portfolio of these things that do really well that you can show on paper in another market like the Smokies or Panama City or something like that, they're going to want to see something like that. And they're going to want to see that you're going to buy multiple, not just one and done. They're probably going to want you to put money in their bank. And um, they're going to want to, like I said, local to you or local to the property, but most likely local to the property. But you're probably not, if you live in Houston, Texas, and you're trying to buy in this market in Florida, somebody like a commercial lender in Ohio is probably not going to give you a loan to do this. So you need to stick stick closer to home, so to speak, in terms of finding these um, commercial lenders. There's not, I will say it is incredibly difficult at the moment to find commercial financing for short-term rentals. A lot of those local banks are really conservative and they just kind of haven't caught up yet. I think that eventually commercial lending will catch up and maybe they will start valuing short-term rentals as, as small little hotels, which are commercial rather than residential real estate, but we're not there yet. And uh, it's pretty difficult to 
to get those now. But anyway, you might be able to find it. I've seen it happen, but you're going to have to make a lot of phone calls and do do some presentations to get that. Okay. Let's talk about non-warrantable condos. So anybody want to tell me what a non-warrantable condo is? Okay. I'll go. They are uh, typically condos that they can't be financed conventionally. So you can't go get a 10 or 15% down conventional loan on them. There's a lot of things that can make a condo building be non-warrantable, but the main one that makes condos in these markets non-warrantable is that the units are owned by a higher higher percentage of units are owned by investors than primary homeowners. So that can scare a lot of people. It scared me off of buying a condo uh, in Destin years ago when I was new. And a lot of people will think, oh, well, I guess I guess these just aren't financeable because my normal m- mortgage broker in Austin can't do it. And um, so I guess everybody who owns a condo pays cash. I had that exact thought uh, when I first started and tried to buy a $150,000 condo in Destin. That's so painful to think of it because it's worth 700 now. And if I would have just tried a different lender, <laughs> I would have gotten it anyway. Um, but all that means is you have to get a different type of financing. So Johnny, what type of financing, what does that look like? Do you need to get for a non-warrantable condo? Yeah. Usually when someone comes with a non-warrantable condo, uh, we put them through uh, either a portfolio lender or a DSCR lender. Um, most of the times through a DSCR lender, right? Um, a good portion of our DSCR lenders does allow people to get into non-warrantable condos. Um, they are a little bit different, right? The non-warrantable condos, sometimes they have, uh, um, you know, the, the different aspects to it because it's, you know, most of the people that live in that specific area are utilizing it as either a second home or some kind of an investment property, right? So um, a DSCR is typically the best way to go with those with those uh, type of uh, real estate. So you typically have to put, tw- did you say 20 or 25% down for non-warrantable? You can do, um, usually it's 25% as of right now, right? It used to be that you can do 20. Uh, mm-hmm. Right now we're at 25% for uh, condos um, or non-warrantable condos as well as condo tells, right? Gotcha. And what's the difference between a non-warrantable condo and a condo tell? So the, the difference is like a condo tell is going to actually act like a hotel, right? So you're going to see key cards. You're going to see um, sometimes they don't have kitchens inside of them, right? Uh, it, the, the functionality is going to be a little bit different where uh, a non-warrantable condo is going to look like a normal condo. It's just going to be investor heavy that owns the property. Gotcha. Okay. So it's nothing to be scared of. Just have oh. to call around and get a different type of loan. Absolutely. Cool. All right, last type of financing. Let's talk about creative financing because that's definitely a buzzword right now with interest rates being high and there being a lot of inventory that's not hitting the market because the sellers don't want to sell because they have this great interest rate and they don't want to have to get into another property that has a worse interest rate. So I guess let's start with owner financing. Anybody want to give a definition of owner financing? Or Oh, go ahead, Johnny. There you go. Yeah. So um, owner financing is when um, a seller owns the property outright. Right. And so they own the property outright and they're willing to actually finance you to be able to get into the property where you're going to be making the monthly payment to the sellers. Right. So on title, they're probably going to be your lender and you're going to be the one that's making payments to them directly. And so that's how owner finance works. Usually the house is fully paid off or almost all the all the time. The house is fully paid off by the by the owner. Yeah. So that's the first thing you want to keep in mind if you're trying to find owner financing is that typically the property has to be paid off because they can't sell the property if they have a loan on it. Um, 
So if you guys are looking for straight up owner financing, that's your first question always. Is it paid off? If it's not, then might want to move on down the road on that. Um, in terms of owner financing also, and I think this is going to be a common theme in the next 10 minutes of talking about creative financing. In markets like this one, especially like out on the, the barrier islands, th these are typically a lot of investor-owned or just wealthy second homeowners. And it's unlikely that they're going to want to get wrapped up with you for the next however many years, five, six years. These types of people typically aren't getting distressed. They'll, they'll sell these off at retail on the MLS before it gets to the point of having to do that. You may be able to find one that that's sees the value of of owner financing and and do it but typically it's not going to be something that is a better deal than getting conventional financing so i've seen a lot of people on facebook recently complaining that calling i saw somebody on the bigger pockets facebook group calling sellers greedy because they went to this, these sellers and said hey i want to do owner financing and the seller said Okay, well, I'm you're going to be paying me higher interest and a higher down payment than you would conventional and they couldn't figure out why. And it's because the seller is taking on risk by doing this and they're having to deal with you for the next few years and and chasing you down for payments and all this stuff. Anybody, if they have the operate well most people, I'm not going to say anybody, there are exceptions to every rule. I for one, if you're going to make me have to be wrapped up with you for the next few years, yeah, you're going to pay me extra than if I just go throw it on the MLS and and get retail for it. So keep that in mind. Owner, there somebody's going to make their money somewhere, and if you can't just bring them all their money at, at once through a conventional or DSCR or commercial loan, then you're probably going to be paying more for that. So just keep that in mind. Um, second type of of creative financing, super big right now, is subject to. So it's very similar to owner financing, but it's when they have a loan on it. And we're seeing a lot of this get more popular, at least trying to do it getting more popular. Uh, where, so for example, the, where we're seeing it a lot right now is owners who bought in 2021, 2022, when interest rates were 2 3%. Uh, uh, buyers want to buy now, but the interest rates are much higher. So deals don't necessarily make sense to them. So what they're doing is going to the owners and saying, hey, I want to buy this subject to your financing. So I will take over your mortgage and start paying this mortgage at the two to 3% rate. And uh, you, and then I'll give you a big down payment, whether it's for the equity or, or what have you. So um, I'm not going to pretend like I'm an expert on it. If you want to be an expert on it, I definitely recommend Pace Morby's book. He is the expert on it. Uh, but again, here's here's where I've seen people get tripped up with subject to. I've seen somebody pay just recently two hundred thousand over the next highest comp on a deal that did not have all that low of a an interest rate, had a five percent interest rate, and then they're also paying the seller on that probably three hundred thousand of equity because the seller had about a hundred thousand equity in it. And so they've got these payments that not that great of an interest rate to start off. I mean, comparatively, compared to the 2 and 3% that we're seeing other sellers have. Plus, they're paying a higher interest rate on that extra, that equity amount that they're paying to the owner directly. And now the main problem, the biggest problem that I see with this is they're $200,000 in the hole on in a, a, sl a slowing market. So there's a very specific set of circumstances where both owner financing and subject to work and they work for everyone. There are certain sellers that they do want to do that. Maybe they're 
they need just need to get out of the property. And this is the best way to do it because they have a lower interest rate. So the stars kind of have to align for both of these things to work. But what I don't want you guys to do is, is run around trying to look for these deals and then getting in this situation that I saw this person do where you're now 200,000 in equity in the hole. And it's probably not, you know, it's not going to get there in the next few years. As a matter of fact, it might, it might get worse first, maybe not terribly worse, but it's definitely not getting anywhere near $200,000 more. So just make sure that when you're using these creative financing and it's really hard to find. And then when you do find it, it's really exciting. Make sure you don't get so excited that you don't see the forest for the trees that like, hey, this isn't actually a good deal just because they're offering this creative financing. Make sure you're looking at the entire picture. Um, okay, I think that's enough about that. Uh, oh, hard money. Anybody want to talk about hard money really quick, Johnny? Um, yeah, hard money, uh, it's usually used for flips, right? So usually used for flips. It's a short-term loan, typically um, less than 12 months. Um, and you go and you get the hard money. They don't require you to have a specific credit score or anything, but you can jump in if the transaction works where you can jump in and you can add value to the property. Uh, they'll be willing to uh, provide you with uh, a hard money loan. However, interest rates are pretty high. Like uh, we do have one program that is a hard money program, but the interest rate is like 12% and you're going to be paying like four to five points. And so you better be prepared to make sure that the, that property has enough value in it so that when you're using the hard money, you're still going to come out with, uh, you know, come out on top. Yeah, I see a lot of investors who listen to a lot of podcasts and say, oh, hard money. I guess if I'm going to be a real estate investor, I need to find a hard money lender. And you don't. You really only need that if you're planning to hold the property for a very, very short period of time because the interest rates on those are nuts. They're like 12, 15%, sometimes more. So, uh, Always, in my opinion, just conventional loans are always going to be the easiest and best way to go when you're starting out. Once you max those out, then maybe move on to other types. But hard money is not something that you need unless you're really planning to flip it. All right. Are there is there anything lending related that we haven't touched on that you guys think we need to? Anything we've missed? The only thing I would say is when you're looking at hard money loans, you know, don't forget to include carrying costs when you're running your numbers. Um, you know, those can get very expensive if you're, uh, you know, planning on buying a property, rehabbing it and then selling it. Um, if your carrying costs are you know very high, make sure you factor that in. Absolutely. All right. Well, if you guys have interest in pursuing this market further, learning more things, there's a few, few ways you can do that. You can join our online Facebook community. It's at short-term rental, long-term wealth, same title as my book. Uh, there's a lot of investors in there just sharing information. So really great place to, to learn more. You can also sign up for one of our live consultation calls every Thursday. You can sign up for those at strquestions.com. Or if you're ready to skip that, hit the, the fast button and go ahead and work with John and Christina on buying something here. You can email us at agents at the short-term shop.com and we'll get you connected. Thanks everyone. 